ora, I'm Sarah Robson and today on The Detail. Our Aussie mates are powering ahead with a now nuclear relationship with our traditional allies. The leaders of the US, Britain and Australia meeting in California have given details of a defence pact that will provide Australia with nuclear-powered attack submarines. While back home, our foreign minister has just returned from China. We have to be able to have diplomatic discussions with China and we have been consistent in the way that we've raised issues uh, and also we've been predictable. So China very much understands our position on a number of fronts. Has AUKUS put us on the sidelines again? And whose side are we on anyway? We are kind of walking walking a little bit of a, a, a fine line really, treating a tightrope of sorts between the two countries. The geopolitical chess game in the Indo-Pacific. New Zealand's foreign policy balancing act in an increasingly contested region. A pact of old democracies coming together to counter a new and growing adversary, China. Sam Sachdeva is Newsroom's National Affairs Editor. He's also the author of the upcoming book, The China Tightrope, about New Zealand's relationship with China. He explains the nuts and bolts behind the AUKUS defence pact and why the attentions of the US have turned to the Indo-Pacific and more specifically, America's key partner in the region, Australia. They've been referred to in the past as the Deputy Sheriff of the South Pacific. Um, so it's sort of feeding into that and saying, look, we're going to keep working closely together, but how do we get you up to the, the level where we want you to be, we being the US, as a, as a partner in the region? Clearly, these submarines will have the capability to operate at war, but the true intent of this capability is to provide for the stability and for the peace of our region. So how significant is the nuclear submarine aspect of AUKUS and Australia acquiring this technology? Yeah, I mean, that is the, the component that everyone is focused on, for good reason. It's huge numbers, so uh, I think that it's going to cost about $400 billion New mm. Zealand over about 30 years. So those are sort of eye-popping figures. It's 0.15% of Australia's GDP on average for the next 30 years Ooh. is going to go, go towards this one project. So... Um, at one level, it doesn't necessarily mean much in the short term because, you know, you are talking about a 30-year project. It's going to take a while for things to to come along. They are going to get some second-hand submarines, nuclear-powered submarines from the, the US sort of at, at an interim period. I think it's about sometime in the 2030s. But in the longer term, it does change the sort of the the scope of, of operations in the, the Indo-Pacific, and in the Pacific, you know, much, much closer to us. Australia's only a few hours away, and they're going to have these nuclear-powered submarines stationed there. So it does sort of add a little bit of friction, I guess, to the, um, the overall state of play in, in our neighbourhood. I mean, why does Australia want nuclear submarines? Great question. I think a lot of people in Australia are asking that. For all the talk about submarines in AUKUS, I reckon there's a lot of questions that remain for ordinary people. Now, I've had plenty of military briefings in the past, but I'm interested. People stop in the street and ask me just basic questions. Why nuclear over conventional and those sorts of things? So part of it is to do with the amount of time that these submarines can stay underwater without resurfacing. I think it's called snorting maybe when they come to the surface. Mm. So they've got some conventional submarines at the moment and those can last a, a few days 
um, you know, a reasonable amount. I don't have the exact number, but then they have to come up and, and, and surface and, and refuel, and you don't have that with nuclear submarines. Uh, and the longer you stay underwater, the the less tight, less often you have to go up. The obvious, obviously, it's the easier it is to stay hidden, and that's I think a, a big part of of what they want. I mean, is Australia gearing up for a potential conflict in the Indo Pacific? Is this what this posturing is about, or is it more deterrence? I think it's primarily deterrence. This is this is more about detecting you know underwater intrusion from from other nations that uh, you know they're not going to be nuclear armed they that they, they've been very clear on that it's nuclear powered but uh, look I mean you they kind of go hand in hand I suppose you know you they will view it as deterrence but to China and other countries they'll see it as sort of aggression and preparing for some sort of conflict and I don't think you know Australia or the US would be the first to start that but equally you know, having this technology, having this capability means that they will be expected to perhaps play a role in that should should it happen, which I think we all hope would not be the case. How has China seen these developments? Yeah, I mean, not not positively, and I think everyone expected that. The phrase they used, I think, was that, was that the three countries AUKUS, uh, in AUKUS were going down a path of error and danger, among some other sort of strong, strong uh, phrases. China has issued a fresh warning to Australia over our nuclear submarines, claiming the deal will impact stability in the region and stoke a new arms race. I mean, in real terms, I, I don't know that it's changed that much. So you've still actually had, I think it was the first meeting in quite a while between Chinese defence officials and their Australian counterparts, despite this AUKUS announcement. You know, there's going to be rhetoric and, and chest beating, but... There are no surprises here. This was announced, you know, a couple of years ago. They knew that this was coming, so it it doesn't change the dynamic. It doesn't aggravate it dramatically, I don't think, but it doesn't improve it either. Things are on a, a trajectory, a negative trajectory, really, and, and this, this doesn't help in that regard. And for New Zealand, it brings those geopolitical tensions so much closer to home. Well, exactly, and I think the, the Global Times, which is a CCP-owned tabloid uh, newspaper in China... Uh, they have an English language website. They've they've written in the past, I think, about how Australia having these nuclear powered subs will make make them a target for China. And then you go, oh well, we're only a few hours away. If there's any you know sort of any conflict, then it does um, it run the risk of spilling onto our shores. So you know, again, I don't want to suggest that's likely. There are very good reasons why each side wouldn't want to to go into to conflict or war. But uh, you know, it does sort of heighten the risks, I guess, and, and make it feel a lot closer for us. New Zealand continues to be a proudly nuclear-free country. Our policy on that is not going to change. Um, so we're not part of the arrangement around the nuclear-powered submarines and won't be part of that arrangement. But the UK, the US and Australia are incredibly important partners for us, including in the defence area, and we'll continue to work with them. We're not part of AUKUS, but do we want to be? Uh, in, in part, the the nuclear powered submarines that's that's you know a no go for us. We've got our um, nuclear free legislation, and I don't think any government would would get rid of that. But that's the non nuclear components where there is there is potential for us to take part, and and a risk I guess that we get sidelined if we're not involved. That you have these sort of standards that are set on things like AI and hypersonic technology. Yesterday, a development on that front. Defence Minister Andrew Little confirmed New Zealand has signalled it is potentially interested in joining that second pillar of AUKUS. New Zealand is a compulsive joiner. We love to be in the room for um, for any and all agreements that we can be. So, you know, if we're, we're left sitting out, 
as the countries move ahead with this and we're not involved in some of those standards and regulations that are set, then potentially that, that leaves us a little bit behind. What I should like to know, sir, is why you don't do the honourable and the consistent thing and pull out of the ANZUS alliance for whether you are snuggling up to the bomb or living in the peaceful shadow of the bomb, New Zealand benefits, sir, and that's the question with which we charge you, and that's the question with which we would like an answer, sir. And I'm going to give it to you if you hold your breath, just for a moment. <laughs> I can smell the uranium on it as you lean towards <laughs> New Zealand's not part of ANZUS, and it almost seems like this defining piece in New Zealand's foreign policy history, the the nuclear-free legislation, New Zealand being frozen out of ANZUS. And yet, I guess over the last decade, there has been a real thawing of those relationships. And as the US has placed a greater emphasis on the Indo-Pacific and the Pacific you know, we're seeing U.S. officials come come and court New Zealand, um, courting other countries around the Pacific. Where where is that relationship at? Oh, you're right. It's it's dramatically improved, and I think there was a degree of, I mean, I would say stubbornness on the American side on this point of principle in relation to the nuclear-powered ships and, and what happened under the Longy government. But there, there's a degree of pragmatism there now, I think, that they, they see a, um, a greater good in, in the US and New Zealand working together. As, as you say, we've got um, very strong relationships, ties into the Pacific, which is an increasingly contested area. Uh, so we've had, I think in the last month, you had the US Secretary of the Interior the administrator of NASA and uh, Joe Biden's uh, Indo-Pacific czar, as is, is an informal title, I think he's Indo-Pacific coordinator, Kurt Campbell, who has strong ties to New Zealand. He's actually got an honour, a New Zealand honour, uh, visiting. So, look, it, it's, it's ramping up, and I, I don't think it's that's going to change. When Kurt Campbell was here, he said, look, I don't want visits like this to be abnormal or unusual. It's just going to be how it is in the relationship. China. We finally had a visit by the Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta last week. It reaffirmed uh, New Zealand's bilateral relationship uh, at a time where we've experienced COVID. Uh, there's a war in Ukraine and the Pacific is contested. Uh, so we were able to state New Zealand's position but also uh, raise some of the challenging issues that we believe need to be addressed. Where is New Zealand at in terms of its relationship with China? Yeah, it's a weird one. We, we've, it feels like we've been in a bit of a lull. I mean, obviously, we've had closed borders through COVID-19. Uh, China has remained closed up until late last year, so visits were off the table. Uh, you know, they've been very focused on things internally, Xi Jinping's uh, third term. Uh, and, you know, we've been focused internally on, on things like coronavirus and, and the cost of living. So there hasn't hasn't been a lot of movement. Things have improved, I think, since 2019, which was when you really had the relationship go downhill over Huawei. The minister responsible for the GCSB is insisting that the decision to ban the tech giant Huawei from Spark's 5G rollout is because of the technology, not because the company is Chinese. You know, and some other uh, sort of uh, discussions between New Zealand and the US that annoyed China. Uh, we signed the, or sorry, I should say we'd signed it earlier, but the FTA upgrade came into force last year, so that that's made some minor improvements for some sectors. But we've been in a bit of a holding pattern, so I think this visit by 
by Mahuta as a, an attempt to kind of move things along, I guess, and, and lay the groundwork a little bit for the next stage of, of uh, relations. Nanaya Mahuta has, has described the relationship with China as very important and complex. I mean, what are some of the complexities of, of this bilateral relationship? <laughs> God, take, take your pick, really. There um, are many. You, there are many. You've got human rights issues in, in Xinjiang and the, the, the Uyghur Muslims. That's, you know, the, I think some of the international outcry has subsided there, but there are still very real issues in terms of how China treats its ethnic and religious minorities. Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, uh, and what what happens there. Everyone does talk about the, the, the risk of war. Uh, which which may not be imminent, but it is it is there. Yeah, China says that you know reunification or unification is an integral part of its its mission. So they're not going to drop this. Um, and then you've got the relationship between China and, and Russia. We had Xi Jinping in, in Moscow the other week with with Vladimir Putin. The two le- leaders share a similar worldview. You know, both embrace the idea of a multipolar world and standing up to US domination. There's been some reports or, or rumours the, the Americans have said that China is, has been contemplating whether or not to provide lethal aid to Russia. In fact, some say that's already happening through sort of circuitous third-party routes. But if China was to sort of insert itself into the, the Ukraine war um, more more thoroughly or more unequivocally on the Russian side, which, to be fair, they haven't done yet. That that would um, cause New Zealand and other countries all sorts of problems. Of course, China remains, you know, a key trading partner for New Zealand. How do we balance those concerns around human rights? Will there come a point in the New Zealand-China relationship where we've actually got to take a stronger stand? I mean, it's a really, really tough question to answer, and I think um, that's something that that successive governments have been have been grappling with. Um, you know, I, I talk to some people who are uh, trade experts on the trade side who say, "Look, if, if we were going to stop trading with all countries who have human rights issues, there would be a very small list indeed." Like, you know, even Australia and the US have have their own issues. I don't think on the same scale as as is in the case in China, but. Uh, so I think you have to – I don't think you cut off contact entirely or cut off ties entirely, but you do need to ensure that you're still, you know, raising these human rights concerns and um, and, and putting them at the forefront when you, when you need to and not compromising that for the sake of trade. In terms of whether we have to pick a side or not uh, – it, it does feel like it's it's heading that way. I mean, we talk a lot about New Zealand's independent foreign policy. I, I kind of think that phrase is overused, and people tend to confuse independent with neutral as well. Mm. Just because we have an independent foreign policy doesn't mean we're not going to side with the US on some issues or, or with China on others. It just means that we have to go through those processes ourselves and make a decision that's in our best interest. So... Look, I think each side would like us to to be closer to them. Realistically, though, you know, the US is not going to be offering us some some uh, spanky brand spanking new trade deal anytime soon, which is would would go a long way to addressing some of the concerns about potential economic coercion from China. And we are not going to be signing big security deals with China. So we're still going to be kind of juggling these competing interests, I think, and the relationships with each nation for for years to come. Would China wading further into the Russia-Ukraine conflict present a bigger hurdle for New Zealand to navigate? Uh, In a word, yes. Yes, it would. You know, we have been very strongly supportive of of Ukraine and very um, condemnatory of the, the Russians and their aggression. 
So if China was was to weigh in, and that that is a big if, uh, you know, as I said before, there are you know they've they've stayed a little bit back, and I think they're aware that they don't want to get too closely associated with Putin. But if they were to sort of become a you know a formal part of the war in, in some form on the Russian side, then then yes, you've got you know the US is already talking about sanctions against China over its role. Uh, we've sanctioned Russia. We have our special Russia Sanctions Act, and that, that allows us to take action against other countries that are involved in, in supporting Russia. So New Zealand wouldn't have the excuse of saying, oh, well, we don't have the legislation to do it. We would, we would be able to. So there would be you know, a huge amount of pressure on all sides to, to act or conversely not to act. Now that we've had Nanaya Mahuta go to China, where there's been talk about a possible visit by the Prime Minister Chris Hipkins. Would the government be looking to sort of resume those sorts of ties, those sorts of um, visits? Because, of course, um, for China, those face-to-face visits are really, really important for maintaining the relationship. Mm. I, I mean, I think at a ministerial level, yes, we're going to see a lot a lot more travel going on to, to China now that they've opened up and they're receptive because... You know, even if there are areas where we disagree, and there absolutely are, you you want to have those sort of lines of communication open and, and discussion going on. So we can say to China, look, here's where we disagree and here's why. Now, they, they may, not, may or may not listen, they may or may not take any of it on board, but at least you're in the room making that case. At, at a prime ministerial level, um, look, I think I think they will probably want to to improve the the exchanges and the, the visits. If you got, we've actually only had one visit by a Labour prime minister in, in the last two terms of government, and that mm. was a very fleeting one. If you remember, Jacinda Ardern was meant to go for a week or so in 2019, but then the the March 15 terror attack happened, and um, she had to cut back her trip quite drastically. I think it was uh, maybe a couple of days in, in late March just to make sure that there was no diplomatic snub there. But, yeah, so I think this is this will be quite important for Chris Hipkins um, if he can get there, if he can get in the room with Xi Jinping and, and have a discussion about these issues. But there are sensitivities that, that mean we're probably not going to have the same closeness that we saw during the, the the national government where some of these human rights issues and security issues were perhaps less at the forefront and it was much more about the trade relationship and, and you know the, the money flowing between the two countries. likely is it that there would actually be a conflict in the Indo-Pacific region? Oh, it's a million dollar question. If I knew that, I don't think I would be a humble journalist. I'd probably be some sort of geostrategic consultant. But uh, look, I'll give it a shot. I think it's it, it, it's less likely than some would assume. There was, there was a series of stories in Australia um, talking about, you know, a war between China and Australia in the next three years, and I think that's that's overblown. You know, war is not generally in, in a country's interest, even, even if you think you're more powerful, because you're going to lose um, people who die in a conflict, you're going to lose money, um, and you're going to lose resources. So I don't think anyone would make... Uh, and, you know, if there's every chance I'll be proven wrong. But I don't think there will be a deliberate decision to to pursue war. The The risk is what happens if 
say you've got uh, American naval vessels doing freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea and a Chinese ship comes too close trying to scare them off and you have an accidental collision and then all of a sudden things get elevated. So it's 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 not so much deliberate attacks as the, the risk of miscalculation mm. of things going wrong, I think, that presents the biggest risk because, you know, through no fault of anyone, arguably, all of a sudden things get ramped up and neither side is necessarily going to want to lose face and, and back down. If you're having those face-to-face or you've got that diplomatic channel um, happening, what happens if there is a miscalculation is at least you, you've got the lines of communication open. Yeah, exactly. And um, I was at the Shangri-La Defence Dialogue in, in Singapore last year. It's this big defence summit where you have you know military commanders and politicians from all over the world. And that was the first meeting in a while between the US Secretary of Defence and his Chinese counterpart. And the, the phrase the Americans were using repeatedly is, is putting in place guardrails you know, guardrails on the relationship. So if you sort of get sideswiped and you, you look like you're going off the side of a cliff, there's something in there in place to at least hopefully prevent you from falling over the side. So I think there's an awareness of that. You know, does that mean the US is going to suddenly cozy up to China or vice versa? Absolutely not. But I think both sides are aware that if they're talking and trying to do things in good faith where they can, then it's in, in both of their interests because it will present, uh, prevent something from spiralling out of control when, when neither side wants it to. And that, of course, is very helpful for New Zealand as we, I guess, try and take this, in some ways it's not really a middle line, but, you know, trying to navigate those two relationships in such a way that um, that we can maintain both of those relationships. Yeah, yeah, we are kind of walking walking a little bit of a, a fine line, really treating a tightrope of sorts between the two countries. And, you know, some people have talked about the idea that we could even be a, um interlocutor, that, that maybe we could be a, a sort of conduit for, for peace talks. I think that's a little bit um, fanciful. I don't see that happening. But actually, we, we do have a foot in both camps, and we're probably as well-placed as anyone in the world, actually, to say to, to one side, look, here's what the other side is thinking. You know, we we don't want to go too far with that, but certainly as a small nation, if you the the more tension and competition there is between great powers, the more likely we are to 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 suffer. You know, that we we benefit from a very stable rules based order, where everyone's part of one system and playing ball. And if you you have things that split up into rival blocks, be it in technology or security or trade, then that is that is bad for us. We don't want to have to pick and choose. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Mark Chesterman. It was produced by Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Sam Suchdeva. Ka kite anō.